Welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast. And this afternoon, I have a really, really, really interesting guest in studio with me. He's the professor of lung medicine at the Hammersmith Hospital and Imperial College Healthcare. And he's also the director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Service at the Hammersmith. He is a key opinion leader, not just locally, nationally, but internationally, and has had sat on many guideline committees and has published widely in the field of lung medicine, exercise rehabilitation and pulmonary hypertension. And today we're going to be discussing implications of COVID, long COVID. And I'm very, very privileged to have a a specialised lung clinician to discuss this important topic today. So join me in a warm welcome for Professor Luke Howard. Luke, welcome. Thank you very much, Millie. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And I know you're in the middle of a busy clinic, so you've really been generous in giving your time. So talking about busy, this must have been one of the busiest times of your life. A lung doctor right in the middle at the onset of the pandemic. I mean, how was that for you? How did you cope at the Hammersmith Hospital? Well, yes, I mean, we could obviously we we could see this coming over a number of weeks and uh, we had two priorities, really. One with my hat on as the director of the pulmonary hypertension service was to make sure that we continued to provide good care to our roughly 1000 pulmonary hypertension patients in terms of switching over to things like video consults and providing them with warnings about what to do. Uh, and so on. But the other side of things that, of course, we worried about was what were we going to do with all the patients coming through? Now, we do have the luxury of being a cold site. What that means is we don't have, have an emergency department. However, we do nonetheless still have a role of helping out our sister hospitals within Imperial College. So we were decanting patients from our other two main sites, Charing Cross and St. Mary's, onto the infectious diseases wards. And that was one of the first things that the pulmonologists here at Hammersmith were asked to do was to contribute to that. But then we were charged with uh, converting one of the cardiology wards to a high dependency unit. It was a fascinating time, Millie, because uh, you could see just how fast the NHS moved when it it had to. We had to install negative pressure HEPA filters. These are things that are used in asbestos construction or deconstruction. We fitted these to the wards. We created negative pressure environments and we converted one of the cardiology wards into a probably about a 14 bedded high dependency unit providing non-invasive ventilation to patients. And there, uh, a bit like the whole story with the NHS, we overplanned a little bit for the first wave. And in the end, we contributed. We were open for a few weeks, several weeks, looking after mainly the immunocompromised patients from the kidney ward and from the uh, the hematology ward and seeing patients uh, at their very sickest at that point in a sort of almost pre-intensive care environment. And so that was that was wave one for us. And then in uh, the subsequent waves, uh, we remained largely a cold site, some decanting coming from other hospitals. But at that stage, we were really back into the business of trying to manage our pulmonary hypertension patients, keeping all of that important diagnostic and management work going, which had really gone uh, fallow during the first wave. Mm. And just for people who don't understand the word pulmonary hypertension, this is like high blood pressure of the lungs. Isn't that right, Luke? 
correct my dinner party line because um, uh, <laughs> you have to keep it short at dinner parties is that uh, it's a lung disease that causes heart failure. So it's a process whereby the arteries in the lungs become narrowed and or blocked. Uh, and so the resistance goes up. And so the, the right side of the heart struggles to pump blood through the lungs. So this is something that we're a bit worried about in relation to COVID. And we have been seeing some of this come through, but also because it can happen because of blood clots. We're also nervous that we might be seeing a whole rash of patients coming through with pulmonary hypertension due to unresolved blood clots following COVID. Because as you know, there's a high association with COVID and blood clotting. Mm. Okay, so it was quite useful for your organisation to have this very intense expertise in pulmonary hypertension so that you could deploy that when planning the high dependency unit, knowing all of the various variables that this acute COVID was bringing. True. Uh, And so we are very lucky to have one of the the seven nationally designated pulmonary hypertension services here on this site and able to therefore serve our local population with that knowledge. Uh, But of course, uh, what happens is you then get pulled into lots of different uh, committees and guideline groups in terms of uh, advising NICE on various issues and uh, coming up with policies for the British Thoracic Society and so on. And so my colleagues and I were were put to good use in in terms of providing advice on a national level uh, in terms of protocols in how to look after uh, sick patients with acute pulmonary hypertension or blood clotting disorders. Mm. So what I'm hearing from you here is there was a number of strands to this. You had to have the local expertise. You assemble that in multidisciplinary groups to actually create the services. For instance, you created de novo, this high dependency unit. And then with that shared body of expertise, you have to develop policies. So it's not just about delivering care or having the physical space or the intellectual resource available, you actually have to have guidelines and policy. And all those three strands together came nicely in a bigger teaching hospital like the Hammersmith. Yes, and it's interesting where there is an evidence-free zone, and let's face it, COVID was COVID was evidence-free, you would find that uh, various trusts would come up with policies and then suddenly these would start to be duplicated uh, across various national organizations, for example, like Intensive Care Society. So if somebody would devise what seemed like a sensible protocol, this would then get rolled out nationally and then refined as more evidence came through. So particularly thinking about things like anticoagulation. I wouldn't claim that Imperial ran the show, but certainly you can see your local protocol and then you see it popping up uh, in national protocols and protocols in other uh, other centres. I think that probably that aspect of work was the thing that kept me the busiest during COVID and so many Zoom and Teams meetings, like I'm sure lots of people have had, that was the thing that kept me most busy, was just making sure that we were uh, sharing expertise amongst groups and building uh, protocols 
while there was no evidence and while we were waiting for evidence to come through. Mm, Very important. As well as the protocols and policies, though, you have actually contributed with your group to further knowledge on what happens after patients come out of hospital with COVID. And you've identified those groups and what their long-term outcome might be like. I mean, it'd be really interesting for you to share some of that data from your paper. Yes. So what happened was um, that uh, the couple of a month or two in, I was wondering what were people going to be facing when they were discharged from hospital with COVID. And so we start to put together a research proposal. Then, of course, you're not the only person who's had that idea. Then uh, a national call goes out for research proposals. And in the end, what the UKRI wanted was one single national coordinated study to examine the impacts of hospitalized COVID on patients' long-term outcomes. Uh, And so in the end, we all collaborated together and put our weight behind Leicester, which put together something called FOSP, or uh, some people call it PHOSP, looking at outcomes following hospitalization with COVID. And I'm pleased to say that Imperial's done very well in terms of recruitment. We've, uh, we're the second largest recruiter behind Leicester. We've recruited over 200 patients into the high-intensity follow-up protocol. And we've started to look at the outcomes of those patients. Clearly, we're still doing data collection. But we've, we've uh, identified some things which are fairly common sense, really, that those patients who had the most significant impact uh, when they were acutely admitted uh, seem to still at six months have a significant number of ongoing symptoms. But what's interesting is that they're fairly sort of graded in terms from severe down to mild, but cognitive impairment seems to stick out and not be related in any way to the physical impairment, either acutely or long term. So cognitive impairment following COVID seems to stand out on its own from everything else. But we know that people who um and particularly women and those with multiple comorbidities seem to struggle the most in terms of long-term outcomes. So that's what we've been doing research-wise. And um, I've been the principal investigator here at Imperial, helping to recruit those patients. And But also, of course, we've been doing our own clinical follow-up in our, in our clinics. Mm, and that's incredibly important to understand what happens to these people. And unfortunately, since the outcomes are slightly worse in women, we can't do much about, about that. But comorbidities, if we can try and modify, and this is Live Longer, the podcast, how to live a longer, healthier life and focusing on what you can do something about, your blood pressure, your weight, etc., In terms of the cognitive impairment, we were chatting before we came on air about the lack of neurological services available because it's all overwhelmed. So how do you translate your findings into some practical help for patients, particularly those who have persistent symptoms? I mean, are these what you would call the long COVID group or what what is it, your perception of long COVID? Yes, so it has been difficult, hasn't it, to try to define, but I think NICE have come up with it sort of quite well. They've actually called long COVID anything that happens after COVID and actually post-COVID syndrome is probably what we're all calling long COVID. But long COVID, I think, is a term that will stick. But what we're talking about in terms of long COVID is something that you can't really put your finger on. It's almost a diagnosis of exclusion, isn't it? So you have a patient who presents to you 
and they've had COVID or often you don't know they've had COVID because they had an illness in March 2020 at the time where it was very hard to get PCR testing. And they present with a set of symptoms and you undertake a, a fairly intensive set of investigations looking at their heart and lungs and endocrine function and you find nothing, which is obviously good because that means that in many ways, if they can get over this long COVID, they're going to be left with no permanent disability. But that's, of course, easier said than done. We don't have any clear test for long COVID. So it is still a syndrome and we're adding to that all the time with our clinical knowledge. So then, of course, because you don't have something that you can put your finger on, unfortunately, many patients are going to see doctors and they're being sent away saying, well, you don't have X, Y or Z. And of course, that's not what a patient wants to hear. What they want to hear is, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't have those things, but now what are you going to do with me? And in cases where cognitive function is the biggest problem, we are struggling to deliver care for those particular issues. But long COVID clinics are being pulled together and there are rehab programs uh, that have been developed and delivered. And also there's some very good resource on the, uh, on the internet. In terms of many patients, the body will heal itself. And what you need, therefore, is a pathway to guide you through that recovery process to give you optimism. And also because recovery can be slow to give you benchmarks by which you can see that you're progressing. Because seeing that you're progressing is, I think, half of the treatment in itself. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we all have seen every clinic I have, I'll see three or four patients with post-COVID phenomena. And I think how the patient presents very much depends on who they present to. So my patients will present with fatigue, musculoskeletal symptoms. Yes, they might have cognitive impairment. Whereas I interviewed Alex Lyne, cardiologist in the Brompton recently, his patients present with breathlessness and with chest pain and they have pleuromyocarditis, inflammation of the heart. Your patients are probably going to present to you with difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, walking and exercise capacity reduced. So it is really about getting the multidisciplinary team together. So we're all on the same page and then we can come up with a, a combined sensible treatment plan. I think you're right there. And that's why it's important that as a physician, you're working in a multidisciplinary environment. So that will happen in, of course, many NHS hospitals and in some private clinics as well, where you have lots of specialties that work together, where they have MDTs together. It's interesting if I'll just pick you up on that point about what are my, present, my patients presenting with? Well, Obviously, patients will present with breathlessness and exercise intolerance, and they will be triaged to me. But uh, often finding that when patients are presenting with very vague symptoms and they go through a triage process, uh, and so we've been working, for example, and in one particular insurance company came to our clinic at One Welbeck and said, we've got so many people ringing up with these slightly vague symptoms and we don't know what to do with them. We want to establish a pathway with you, a national pathway with you, for patients to come to see you uh, and for them to go through a workup and then uh, go through rehabilitation. So we've been working with them. But often what you find is that the patients for whom who have the vaguest of symptoms, the poor person on the phone trying to triage them doesn't know where to send them. 
So I suspect some will go to endocrinology and some will go to cardiology, but you often find some of them coming to respiratory because if they can say, well, do you find that your exercise capacity is reduced? And they say, yes. They say, right, well, look, we'll send you to a pulmonologist. But I think all of us, rheumatology, cardiology, respiratory, endocrinology, will see patients who maybe have one thing that we're used to looking after, which is uh, abnormal, or we exclude it. But then there will be all the other long COVID symptoms. So I think we're all going to have to get very used to dealing with how to consolidate these symptoms, put them into different clusters and decide what the best course of action is going to be. Uh, And I suspect you have exactly the same issue that I have. I think for rheumatology, because I often describe myself, my dinner party line is we're like a bit of a detective. People come to rheumatology when they don't know what else to do sometimes and, and we work them up and you know, we're used to seeing patients with multi-system diseases. And in some ways, the long COVID patients that I'm seeing, it's almost a mimic of nonspecific autoimmune illness like lupus-like illness. And I've, I've heard various colleagues saying that maybe it's a form of this because they can have antibodies positive. They've got multiple symptoms in multiple different systems and pathology when you investigate them. And sometimes we have to apply treatment modalities that we would normally use like immunomodulatory agents for patients with nonspecific and and with lupus-like illness to get them better. Obviously, that wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all. You need to tailor it based on your clinical investigation, examination and findings and use these agents judiciously and know what you're doing. That's absolutely right. And I think that's why uh, having these multidisciplinary uh, clinics and enables you to learn from your colleagues because there's always great tidbits of information you can pick up by talking to each other. So in respiratory medicine and also with my pulmonary embolism and pulmonary hypertension hat on, there are certain things that I will look for uh, when I'm presented with a patient with breathlessness. And the, the lung scarring that we see after COVID is actually relatively rare. And particularly for people who've not been hospitalized, that's not really going to be a problem. The blood clots all thankfully seem to resolve. We treat for six months with blood thinners. Uh, and pulmonary hypertension at the moment seems a fairly rare entity. So we're then having to dig deep and look at other aspects, like you point out, the autoimmune aspect. But what I'm seeing an awful lot of is people with ongoing tachycardia, orthostatic symptoms, and by that I mean dizziness with prolonged periods of standing. And this can translate into exercise intolerance. So you have to have your wits about you when listening to the patient. And just by listening a lot to a lot of different patients, you can start to see these clusters coming through. And you obviously know uh, Boone Lim very well, and he's done some amazing work on autonomic dysfunction. I'm seeing an awful lot of autonomic dysfunction. I would say that probably 80% of the tilt tests I refer to him come back positive. So there's a lot of that about Uh, And then um, this concept that I don't really claim to fully understand, mast cell activation syndrome, there seems to be a lot of symptoms relating to histamine release that seem to be in some cases responding to antihistamines. But the antihistamines 
don't just work on that classical pathway. There seem to be some other immunomodulatory effects they may be having through the excellent work of Paul Glynn and his colleagues at the Physicians Clinic. So there are lots of these things. And if you keep your eyes and ears open, you'll garner quite a lot of information and to be honest, it's pretty hard to process it all, I have to say. And there's an awful lot of research out there as well, some of it good, some of it bad. And and I'm often getting emails from patients saying, I've seen this report on Twitter. Uh, what do you think about this drug uh, that's being trialed over in Germany? It's very hard to synthesize everything. And we do need to try and bring everything together a little bit to start to have a bit more of a standardised protocol. Yeah, and I think maybe with the help of data analytics and AI, it is going to synthesise and bring that data together, like the discovery of baricitimab and these drugs for use in in COVID. They were AI-driven models. But one thing I'd like to pick up on and what you were saying is that we're developing an expertise, we're identifying clusters, we're working with each other. I would also counsel, and I have learned this, it's a real take-home message for me, that not everything is long COVID. And we need to listen to our patients because it's quite dangerous to assume something is long COVID when there may be another secondary condition out there. Now, in the beginning of the post-COVID, long COVID whole phenomenon, we were counselled by the BMJ and other bodies to just come out with it and say it's long COVID and get on and treat the patient. But I actually think we need to keep an open mind because very often they might have COVID, post-COVID, but then they might also be masquerading with a secondary illness and always keep an open mind. Listen to your patients. If they're really, really not getting better or getting new symptoms, think about reinvestigating so that we don't assume that everything is long COVID because there is a lot of other pathologies out there still that are not being addressed. That's a very important point, and it's very topical in a way, isn't it, that now we've got lots of people with COVID in hospital, but it's incidental COVID. Uh, and there were many complaints about the way deaths were counted following COVID. If you people were dying uh, with COVID, not but not from it. So you're absolutely right. But I think possibly what having this acute massive spike in a pretty nasty virus might teach us is about conditions that may in the past uh, and still have a viral trigger. We don't know, for example, with pulmonary hypertension, why some people get it. We have people with a clear genetic mutation. And I remember many years ago looking after a, a set of identical twins with the same mutation. One developed pulmonary hypertension, the other didn't. Is it because there was a clear viral trigger in one of the individuals and not the other. So, and of course, long COVID is to many people chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. So you're absolutely right in saying it could be something else. And in fact, that something else may be something that is importantly triggered by COVID just in some way that another virus might have triggered it in the past, but is now an entity that we know how to treat in in and of itself. So, for example, you're talking about lupus-like syndromes. You treat as per lupus. Uh, And so I think that's one of the silver linings potentially from COVID is that we might understand a little bit more uh, how to deal with chronic fatigue syndrome, which would be a massive help to so many millions of people out there who have suffered with chronic fatigue syndrome and it hasn't been recognised and there haven't been any treatments 
this might effectively spearhead some kind of research into that. Yeah, exactly. And also, of course, our first and primary concern is for the patient and their health. But but also you add all those patients together and the impact on the economy, loss of working hours, loss of productivity, loss of self-esteem is huge. So this is not just, you know, a health problem. This is a societal and economic consequence of the pandemic, maybe an, an, an not a, a widely thought about consequence, that one that will emerge more and more because of the number of people that have been affected with this illness absolutely yeah and and throw in um the whole concept of lockdowns and isolation uh, and you've got the perfect storm for potentially a, a, a rather nervous population going forward mm, exactly and speaking of nervous population i mean how did you keep safe yourself and what what did you do to stay healthy well, I'm uh, I'm blessed with a large family, uh, and so in many ways, lockdown for us was a really, really lovely time for us to keep in touch. We had some many significant birthdays uh, over lockdown, and we would dress up in black tie and celebrate together as a family. So, family was really, really important, and also having a very close knit uh, department at work. So, friends and family, but in terms of physical. I just threw myself in onto my uh, rowing ergometer at home. Unfortunately, in lockdown, we weren't allowed to go out rowing or sculling, which is the thing that I'm most passionate about. But uh, I would just jump on the ergo every evening on Zoom with some of my rowing buddies. Uh, and so I would exercise and I'd monitor my health. I'd got all these sorts of wearables that would I'd be able to sort of monitor my heart rate at particular workloads. And that way I would know that I was fit and, and staying in a place I wanted to be. And so I just set myself different goals and different targets to try to keep sane and keep healthy. And as soon as we're allowed back on the river, then that was a wonderful moment to be able to do that, reconnect with with rowing buddies, but also just to get that form of outdoor exercise. So that's my thing. Friends had to obviously take a bit, you know, a bit of a hit because of socialization, but uh, family, colleagues, exercise, just to keep one sane. Mm, so family, friends, this sense of community, exercise, monitoring your own health. You mentioned the wearables and also embracing nature. These are very accessible things that we can all do no matter who we are, where we come from and how much resource we have at our disposal. Yeah, indeed. How about you, Millie? How did you manage? Well, again, family. I mean, I'm working mother my whole career and two of my kids went to boarding school for a period of time. And so I felt I missed out as a mum. So for me with lockdown and I've been used to doing remote consultations because I worked in Canada and we had many patients in the Northern Territories. So I've been doing video consultations for, for two decades. So for me, it was in my comfort zone. It was amazing to have the kids home. I could play mum. I could be doctor on Zoom. And I did go back to work face to face relatively quickly, but just one day a week. But I've kept my working pattern to half remote, half in person. And for me, it's been a good thing. And 
It allowed me time to think during lockdown. I innovated. We set up a digital healthcare company that you're involved in in Iona. And we've made some really good solutions to enable clinician patient engagement and save time. And, and I went back to university. I applied to Cambridge and I'm doing a degree in entrepreneurship. So for me, it was a time of family growth, exercising and, and innovation and opening and broadening my mind. So I think it benefited. But of course, the toll on society is massive. And these are small wins in a larger loss. And, and hopefully we emerge from this soon. I think you're absolutely right. The things that we have learned uh, from COVID, we will be able to put to good use. And I think it makes us look back on some of the practices we had. I think they're a bit archaic to be honest, uh, and you realise what brings fruit and what doesn't. And there are very different and innovative ways that we can manage patients going forward with wearable technology and using virtual consultations that we can learn from. And we can we can uh, really push ourselves into the, into the 21st century. And I think we needed something like this to give us a little bit of a nudge or probably <laughs> more than a nudge. This was, mm. this is a kick up the backside yeah. uh, to refresh the way we're doing things. Uh, so I think there will be a lot of benefits that will, will come out of this uh, once we've got through this awful acute phase, which hopefully, fingers crossed, is looking like we might be doing now. <laughs> well, I think that's a good positive note to finish on. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining me today. I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And thanks for giving up your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Millie. Thank you, Luke. And thank you to my listeners for tuning in. And do tune in in the next few weeks because we've got more exciting conversations. We will have a high performance athlete, Dr. Tamsin Lewis, who has suffered from long COVID and she's going to talk about her experience. And um, we've also got a number of other people, including uh, Mr. Joe Harrison, CEO of Milton Keynes University Hospital, to tell us about how a major organisation has responded to the pandemic and how digitising the NHS is potentially the way forward out of our resource shortfall, etc. So exciting conversations. So leave us some feedback if you wish on Hello Live Longer, the podcast, or we'd love to have your feedback on one of the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much and bye for now.